I get a sermon the week of, but this particular sermon, God gave it to me early on, and I felt it was really significant for this time that we're in. But Father, we come in Jesus' name through his blood, and we just thank you for the awesome power of the word of God. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We love your presence. What an awesome, there's an open heaven here tonight, the glory. Thank you for Holy Spirit for coming. Lord, we thank you for powerful praise and worship. Uh, Lord, we just love your presence. We love the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but we have to have the Word of God. That's our anchor. That's our truth. And Lord, we love your Word, and we thank you for your Word. And as we go through this tonight, this sermon, I thank you, Lord, even now for the Holy Spirit moving upon every one of us to give us good, fertile soil for the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. I thank you, Lord, good soil. I thank you, Lord, for speaking through me your seeds of truth that's sown into that good soil that's prepared by the Holy Spirit, even right now, the Holy Spirit to lock us in and give you our best year, our full attention, our focus, no distraction, but the words getting in us, watered by the Holy Spirit, and will take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. We want good seed into good soil. And Lord, I thank you for it. I thank you for the winds of the Holy Spirit carrying this out among the nations. And Lord, that it's going to get where it's supposed to accomplish what it's supposed to. It's a light shining, dispelling the darkness. Lord, it's a washing of the water of truth. And Lord, I thank you for the power of your word. And Lord, we just thank you tonight. Uh, we stand on the promise that your word will not return void, but it will go forth and accomplish that which you sent it forth to do. And Lord, we, we submit this unto you. The Bible says the birds of the air try to steal the seed. That's the demonic. We bind the enemy right now in Jesus' name that would try to hinder this from getting where it's supposed to, accomplishing what it's supposed to in any way. We break your power. We command you to back off right now. And Lord, I thank you for your angels just clearing away any resistance that this will be a powerful time in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, just the power of the word under the anointing is unbelievable. Um, I, you know, I feel there's, there's a lot of people out there who probably preach a lot better and all that, but I depend on the Holy Spirit. And I have had so many times that the word of the Lord, people have told me different things. I remember one time my wife told me that she had come in she had a step out come in, and she said it was like, the only way she could describe it was like I was speaking, but there was like, almost like a spiritual echo, echo, echo behind it. She said it was, it was strange, but she knew that it was the power of the Holy Spirit in the Word or something. She said she's heard this. I've, heard, I've had people come to me and tell me, Pastor, when you said this, it really impacted me, and I was thinking to myself, I never said that. I went back and looked at my notes. It wasn't in my notes. I went back and listened to the sermon. It wasn't in the sermon. Who spoke that to them? The Holy Spirit spoke that to them. So there's, there's a power. There's a supernatural power in the Word of God. How I many knows the Bible isn't just some random book? And let me encourage you guys tonight. Hey, Dean, hand me your Bible real quick, buddy. Let me encourage you tonight to always treat the Bible with great, great respect. Come here, bring it to me. We don't treat it like just any random book, okay? This, the Bible is alive. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. This is the Word of God. You know, when you have your Bible, don't, don't just, just throw it down. Don't treat it with disrespect. Don't set it here and use it like a coaster for your coffee, okay? You can do that with other books. Do it with your math book, right, guys? All the young people said, amen, amen. But don't do that with the Bible. Treat the Bible with respect. There's a, there's a power this is God's holy word. Okay, here you go, Dean. Thank you, buddy. Dean, grab it. All right, so tonight we're going to look at an ancient enemy called Amalek. And we're going to talk about defeating the spirit of Amalek. This is kind of an in-depth look in some ways at the book of Esther. We're at Purim, and so 
God gave me this, and I, I believe that I encourage people tonight to, to go through and read the book of Esther, but I believe that some of this will really speak to you tonight. And like I said, when you preach the word like this, the Holy Spirit and God's word has a way of applying it to different lives in different ways. Where it's speaking one thing to one person that needs to hear it for their situation, it can be speaking life and direction to another person in another situation. I believe this is one of those words that has many applications for many situations. We all go through spiritual warfare, but God is the God of supernatural breakthrough. I'll never forget reading this. This has always stayed with me, I guess because studying it out, I know how, how difficult and how impossible this situation was. The Roman soldiers come. They arrest Peter. They have him locked inside a prison cell, and there are guards on each side of him laying on the ground as he sleeps at night, and he's chained to the guards. He is in an impossible situation. There's no way out of this in the natural. We all know this. As a matter of fact, under Roman law, if somebody, if these soldiers were to let him escape, then they would be executed. So you know that they're probably going to go to great lengths to make sure that this guy is laying there beside them. And God's people were crying out in prayer. The early church had lost, you know, Peter, James, and John, they had lost James, one of their leaders. He had been beheaded. And so they saw Peter arrested. They knew that the plan was to execute him, and they didn't need to lose another leader. So they began to gather together and earnestly pray. I mean, they were crying out late into the night. I'm sure that they gave up food. And they, as they were crying out, here's what happened. God sent an angel. This angel walked right into the prison cell. He kind of kicked Peter on the side to wake him up. When he did, the chains fell off Peter supernaturally. The angel didn't bring a key or anything. The chains just fell off of him. Peter stands up, and the angel turns, and the door to the prison supernaturally opens. Peter follows the angel out. He's thinking that he's having a dream. But as he gets outside and the angel disappears, he realizes it's really happening. So he, he runs back to the house where the people were praying, and the people of God, he knocks on the door, and they could hardly believe that Peter was standing there. They had a hard time believing it, but in a very short amount of time, as they earnestly cried out, God turned an impossible situation 180 degrees around. Okay, and that's kind of the story here of Purim, the God's supernatural sovereign who answered prayers and turns impossible things around. So Amalek speaks of, I know that it was a literal group of people, but Amalek prophetically speaks of the perpetual warfare against the seed of God and God's purposes in the earth. Throughout every generation, there has been a spiritual war against what God was doing in the earth. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? In every generation, there has been a spiritual resistance, a warfare against what God was doing in the earth. Amalek prophetically speaks of that spirit. We could say this is the way I personally see it, so I'm going to preach it the way I see it. But I believe that Amalek, if you want to say it this way, the spirit of Amalek, that's fine. But Amalek would also be the spirit of Antichrist that's at work in the world. Another name you could call this spirit would be 
anti-Semitism. And let me tell you why. Because Satan knows that Israel is the land, and he knows that there's got to be a remnant of Jewish people for Jesus to come back to. And so every attack that Satan is doing against Israel and the Jewish people is meant to stop the second coming of Jesus Christ. And another name, I believe, is by the name of Gog, G-O-G, which very interestingly appears not only in the last days that we're living in now with the Gog-Megog war, but if you read the book of Revelation, in the very, very end, the enemy that comes against Jesus in Jerusalem, their number, like the sand on the seashore, at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ is called Gog. So there's an ancient enemy here that's very, very satanic, very powerful, that tries to begin to be at work in governments to pass legislation. It tries to be at work in universities to brainwash people. It tries to be at work through the entertainment industry to lead people away from Jesus. It wants to be at work in the media to lie and deceive people. This is an ancient, powerful spirit that is bent on resisting whatever it is that God is trying to do in this generation. And so let me just read a few things. Um, Amalek was a literal group of people with a literal military that Israel had to fight. And God spoke to Moses this way. He said, he said, remember what Amalek did to you as you were leaving Egypt? He happened upon you and struck the weakest people trailing behind you when you were exhausted and he did not fear God. Amalek targets your weaknesses. Please write that down, underline it, highlight it, put asterisks around it. Chisel it in some stone, <laughs> hang it on your wall. Amalek targets your weaknesses. If you've had a certain area of your life that you've struggled, I promise you, if Satan wants to stop you from your destiny, he knows about that weakness and he's going to target that weakness. And the Bible says that Amalek came against Israel, so God told Moses to strike Amalek. And this was the story when Moses had to go up on the mountaintop, remember, and he held his hands up and Aaron and Hur had to stand on each side of him and hold his arms up. And Joshua, with the Israeli forces, were fighting Amalek down in the valley. And as long as Moses' hands were held up, which is really symbolic of praise. How many knows praise is very powerful to give us victory in war, by the way? But as, as Moses held his hands up, Joshua prevailed and eventually defeated Amalek. But they did not completely wipe Amalek off the face of the earth. They just simply defeated them. But the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So Moses built an altar and named it, the Lord is my banner. Yahweh Nisi. That's where we get that name Nisi from was the battle of Joshua against Amalek. Remember that we have the names of God that we all quote and we know but there's a power in knowing when that came forth in the Bible. The name Jehovah Nisi came forth during this battle. And he said, the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war. Listen to this. The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. 
So the Bible says that there would be a battleground there that will go from generation to generation to generation. Now, I want you to hear what I'm about to say. I believe this also, I, I believe you can see it this way as well, that Satan attacks our generations. I want you to think about family blessings and heritage. Satan begins to attack the seed of the righteous. In Exodus 17, 13 through 16, Amalek was a great enemy with, along with Midian that Gideon had to defeat. Did you realize that Gideon's great victory was against not only the Midianites, but the Amalekites? Isn't that interesting? Did you know David in the famous story at Ziklag when David was out with his men and, and the Amalekites came in and they raided Ziklag and they wiped out everything that David and his men owned, everything, stole it. Those were Amalekites that did that. And David's man thought of stoning him, and David was, was struggling, and he cried out to God, and God told him, go attack them, pursue them, for you will overtake them and recover all. So there seems to be this perpetual war. It's interesting because whenever Balak, who was the king of Moab, he, saw, he had heard how God had parted the Red Sea, and he heard that these Israelites were coming, and he was afraid because Pharaoh, the Egyptians, was the most powerful military and the most powerful economy in the world of that time, and God decimated them. And so they were coming his direction. He was scared, so he hires Balaam, who is basically what we would know as like a very powerful witch doctor or shaman, something like that. And he summons him to come and offers him great wealth, and I'm not going to get into that whole story. But Balaam, very interesting, some of the things that Balaam said, if you read them, were very interesting. And he said this about the Amalekites. He called them the first among the nations. Why would he say that when they weren't? There was something to that. And I want you to just listen to what I'm about to tell you. When this is why I believe first among the nations and then from generation to generation all the way down, listen to what I'm about to say. There has been an antichrist spirit. When, when Adam and Eve sinned, God had them stand before him, and he basically prophesied to Satan. He said that there is coming a Messiah. I'm paraphrasing it, okay? But he told the devil, he said, from the woman is going to come a Messiah. You will strike at his heel, but he will crush your head. And Satan knew that there was going to come a Messiah out of a woman. And so he began to strategize. Please hear what I'm saying and don't miss this. This is what I believe, kind of like the spirit of Amalek, if you will. From generation to generation, the devil began to strategize, how can I stop this seed from coming? How can I stop the Messiah? And he saw that Adam and Eve procreated, and Eve from the woman came Cain and came Abel. And he began to study their strengths and weaknesses and wondered to himself, could Abel maybe be the Messiah because Abel was righteous? Are y'all hearing me? So he began to strategize, I better kill Abel. And he found a weakness in Cain because Cain was arrogant and rebellious, apparently, and didn't want to worship God the way that God had prescribed worship. He wanted God on his terms. Hello? 
And God didn't accept Cain's offering because it wasn't the right offering. It's not that God didn't love Cain, but Cain was trying to do it his own way. God, I want you on my terms. I'm not going to submit to what you want. And Satan saw that. He saw rebellion in Cain. Are y'all hearing me? And so Satan began to strategize. Cain, there's no way Cain can be the Messiah, but Abel might be, so I've got to kill Abel. So the Lord warned Cain and said, sin is at your door. You better master it, but he didn't. And so the devil basically entered Cain and used him to murder Abel. The, the big picture there was Satan was trying to stop the coming of Jesus Christ. That's what this is all about. I'm wanting you to see down through the annals of history how this spirit of Amalek has been bent on stopping the purposes of God. So whatever God's trying to do in the generation right now, that spirit of Amalek behind the scenes is wanting to resist and hinder that. And so... After that, Cain and Abel conceived again. I'm sorry, Adam and Eve conceived again and brought forth another child. And Satan realized that he was not successful at stopping the righteous seed. And so as time went on, Satan began to try to, to, to think of a way, how can I stop the coming of Jesus Christ? And so he strategized, if I could get some of my fallen angels to come down and begin to procreate with women and produce Nephilim, I could pervert the human DNA and I could use that to stop the coming of Jesus Christ. And so we have a glimpse of it in Genesis 6. Of course, the book of Enoch, which is not in the Bible, so take it with a grain of salt, but it does a good job of explaining a little more depth of what was going on. But these fallen angels came down, began to procreate. This went on for like a thousand years. This was not some short-lived thing. And this produced all kinds of a hybrid in humanity. It perverted the DNA. And here's the interesting thing. God said when he looked at mankind in that condition, he saw that the whole world was polluted with this fallen angel DNA. I have no doubt witchcraft occult practices, which God hates with a passion, there would have been bloodshed and violence. There would have been all kinds of sexual immorality. And God was so grieved. He said, I am grieved that I made man. And he was planning on wiping out, wiping out mankind, period. But it says Noah found favor in his sight. And if you read it in Hebrew, that Noah was blameless in his generation, it actually reads in the Hebrew that his blood was blameless. His blood was not tainted with the Nephilim. And so Noah and his three sons and all their wives, eight in all, God told him, build an ark. He wiped out all that Nephilim and started over with Noah. And so, God, so Satan began to strategize. Now I've got to look at Noah and his family. Are you hearing what I'm saying? He found a door in Ham and Canaan, and he began to move into that part of the world and later on, as Satan was studying what God was doing in the generations, he was studying every generation, what is God doing because I'm going to try to stop this coming of this Jesus Christ. And he saw that later on, one of the sons of Shem by the name of Abraham, I know it was Abram and changed to Abraham later on, but Abraham called out from the earth of the Chaldees and God met with him. God cut covenant with him. And Satan began to say, I've got to stop him. 
I've got to stop this seed. And so God promised Abraham, listen to this. God promised Abraham, I will give you the land of Canaan. So what does Satan do? He begins to fill for 400 years, fill the land of Canaan from border to border with witchcraft, occult practices. The giants were in there. The Nephilim were back. He began to fill the land with all kinds of idolatry and all the different sexual immoralities, things that God would hate. Why did he do that? He was trying to stop what God was going to do. And God told Abraham to walk the the land. He was going to give it to him. And then as Abraham ends up, eventually his son Isaac, and then Jacob, the 12 tribes, they end up in Egypt, in the land of Goshen. There they become a mighty nation. 400 years later, the, the land of Canaan was so corrupt and evil. And God says, now I'm going to raise up Moses. But think about it. Satan tried to kill Moses. Every time God was trying to do something or God did do something, Satan was trying to stop it. Nonetheless, Moses is spared. Moses takes them out. They leave Egypt. They go through the wilderness. And God says, I'm going to give you this land. And I mean, they faced opposition after opposition. But I want you to remember it was Amalek that snuck in behind and targeted the weak ones and targeted weaknesses. So Joshua eventually goes into the land, and he's got to take it inch by inch. And they end up conquering it. But we go down through this, the annals of history, the same thing. I mean, I could go on and on for a long period of time, but the story of Esther is the same type of thing. Here, Satan is trying to stir up the annihilation of the Jewish people. Why? Because it will stop the coming of Jesus Christ. If there is no Jewish people, how could the Messiah come through that, see? The whole time Satan was trying to stop in that generation, and then now we get to the story of Purim in the land of Persia. Satan once again is trying to stop God's purposes. And what really struck me as I was looking at this, I was thinking about how Satan, kind of going back in time now, Satan targeted Abraham's own family. I've never understood Esau. When I read about Esau, he just he kind of makes me a little angry because I think to myself, just this arrogant person who didn't appreciate what he had. Some people are that way. They're always they just grumble, they complain, they can't be content, they're not thankful. They're, they're just always they're so discontented with what God's given them. There's something bent in them. But anyway, Jacob and Esau. Here he is, Jacob and Esau both the grandsons of Abraham. What a heritage. What a family tree that they're in. But Satan found something in Esau. And even though Esau being the firstborn of the twins, but he was the first one out, Esau had the birthright. He had the the blessing. What was going from Abraham to Isaac was supposed to go from Isaac to Esau. We should be saying today, Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, and it should be a positive thing, but no, Esau didn't care about it. Did you just hear what I said? He had everything handed to him on a silver platter, and he honestly just didn't care. 
All Esau cared about was his selfish little self. He was a narcissist, very arrogant. He was so selfish, even though his parents didn't want this for him, Esau went out and they were, okay, God's people were supposed to live among the land of Canaan, but not intermarry into it. Esau didn't care. He wanted what he wanted when he wanted it. And so he goes out and marries a Hittite woman. And basically Esau leaves the tents of his family and builds stone houses like the Canaanites. And Esau basically became a little Canaanite. And it really broke Isaac and Rebekah's heart. Read it. Go back and read the story. It grieved them deeply. And Rebekah knew how both of them really were. And even in the womb, there was like a turmoil in there. And she cried out to God, what's going on? I mean, there was something raging in the womb. And, and God spoke to her and said that there was two in her, but the younger would, you know, be the one that would inherit the promise. And so she knew that Jacob was supposed to be the one, but in that culture, the firstborn, it was a big deal. In that culture, it was a big deal, the firstborn, you know, and Isaac couldn't see it. But Esau, God handed him everything on a silver platter. He had the blessing of, of Abraham, that awesome blessing. He had the covenant. Um, he, had, he was part of what God was doing in the earth at that time. Everything he had available to him and he was willing to give up his birthright for a stupid bowl of soup. Think about how pathetic that is. You, I think we read over it, and we really can't appreciate how arrogant that is, that he honestly just didn't care about God. He didn't care about anybody but himself. And so God had to bypass Esau and put his hand on Jacob. Jacob goes to Laban, his uncle, who was just, I mean, a conniver, changed his wages 10 times, made life difficult for him, but God blessed Jacob. I'm going to come back to that later, but let me tell you, let me just say this. Don't take lightly your heritage. The generational blessings that God has available to you and your family, what God's put in your life, there are some people that there's something in them that is bent and crooked like Esau that they just cannot be content. It's iniquity. They can't be content and happy and thankful for what they have. Don't let the devil come in like he did Esau and cut you out of that tree of blessing that God has you in and try to take you and put you into a different tree. Are y'all hear what I'm saying? I think about my wife in this area. As far as we know, most people follow our ministry, know her story, but as far as we know, and she's got this book that goes back generations, the closest thing to any type of Christianity was Mormonism, which obviously is a cult and not Christianity. But she has absolutely nobody that we know of in her family going back as many generations as we know that has ever been a Christian, but my wife accepted the Lord, and she chose to cut herself off from all of the sin and all the evil and all the curses, all the witchcraft, everything her family was wrapped up in. She cut herself off from that 
and she has engrafted herself into a totally different tree over here with us. Are you hear what I'm saying? Still loves her family, still talks to him, etc. Prays for him, but the ones that are there, I can't say much here. We're going on the internet, but the ones that didn't do that have had a lot of problems, a lot of heartache. Now I'm going to come back to Jacob and Esau at the end of this. But Esau not only became a Canaanite and lost everything that God had for him, but how many know sometimes these selfish little Esau's, whenever Esau did it to himself, are y'all hear what I'm saying? He did it to himself, but then instead of owning it and saying the truth, I was stupid enough to give up my birthright for a bowl of soup. Instead of admitting that, he hates Jacob and wants to kill him. And there's a Jewish midrash, which is some writings in the Jewish culture that states that when Esau was getting old, he called in his grandson, Amalek. Y'all hear that? And he told his grandson, who was named Amalek, he said, I tried to kill Jacob, but I was unable to. Now I am entrusting you and your descendants with the important mission of annihilating Jacob's descendants, the Jewish people. Carry out this deed for me, be relentless, and show no mercy. How evil is that? So he became an enemy. Esau and his descendants, it wasn't enough. How many knows that the seed of the wicked many times will hate the seed of the righteous? There's this ancient hatred in the Bible. It's mentioned the Olam Eba, which means ancient hatred. That goes back to Esau. It goes back to his grandson, Amalek, that there's been this ancient hatred against God's people. And isn't it interesting when Jesus was alive and he walked the earth, here he is finally, the Messiah has come. But that there was some type of a spirit, if you will, of Amalek, which obviously is the Antichrist spirit, okay? But this, it raised up, and there was this resistance against Jesus Christ that people, and it said about Jesus in the book of John, it said that people hated Jesus without reason. And Jesus went on to say that. He said, they hated me, but they'll hate you too because you're my people. He said, you know why they hate me? And Jesus answered the question, because I testify that what they're doing is evil. So if we're just simply going to be real Christians here, and we're just going to stand for what God's for and against what God's against, you better be ready for that spirit of Amalek, the Antichrist spirit, to stir up that there's going to be people that hate you without reason. Why do they hate you? Because you represent the fact that what they're doing is evil. And the book of John also records that Jesus was hated by the religious he was hated by the Pharisees and Sadducees who the Pharisees were various tribes. The Sadducees were the ones that were descendants of Aaron, but they were the scholars. They were the ones that studied the word. They knew it front and back. I mean, they could quote it. Yet as religious as they were, they hated Jesus. Why? Do you know what the book of John says? Because they were jealous of him because of the miracles. So Jesus was hated by the wicked, but he was also hated by the religious yet he was beloved by the Father. So we better go ahead and count our cost. Are we going to be beloved by men or are we going to be beloved by God? If you're going to love God and live for God, you better make up your mind that there's going to be people that are going to hate you. As a matter of fact, maybe even your own family will hate you. 
without reason. Why? Because just simply by virtue of the fact you're a Christian and you stand for what God's for and against what God's against, they get angry at you because your life testifies that some of the things in their life are evil. Hello? So it took Joshua to defeat Amalek. Then later on, you see from generation to generation, later on in history, God assigned Israel's first king, King Saul. And tells Saul, he said, I want you to completely, listen to what God said to Saul. I want you to completely kill every single Amalekite. I want not one of them alive. I want you to slaughter everything they own, every animal that breathes, I want you to destroy their cities that they will cease to exist. And King Saul says, well, it sounds good. Okay, let's go to war. He goes to war, and Saul, being rebellious, does not finish the task. He comes back with some of the really healthy animals that he wanted. And he comes back with the king, Agag, and maybe, maybe a few others. We don't know the Bible, but the Bible specifically says that king. And Samuel shows up. And Samuel says, when, he, when Saul sees him, Saul says, I've done what the Lord said. And Samuel said, well, why do I hear this bleeding of these sheep over here and the lowing of that cattle over there? He didn't do what he was told. And the problem was because he did keep some of them alive, it's going to come up later on. Let me just tell you, when you're dealing with the devil's forces, you better go ahead and completely let God annihilate it out of your life. 100%. Do not partially get victory, completely get victory, because if you don't, it will try to come up later on in life. Did y'all hear what I said? David's greatest enemies when, later on when he came to power were the Philistines, but, but also the Amalekites. Now we go into the story of Esther. Here's the interesting thing about Esther. This, is, this was several years later. Okay, several years later, Israel is now in the land of Persia. They've been in captivity and living there. Now there was an evil man by the name of Haman that was a descendant of the Amalekites. Did y'all hear what I just said? Haman was a descendant of the Amalekites. As a matter of fact, it seems in Esther 3, 1 to indicate that he was a direct descendant of King Agag. So he did not, as Saul did not completely wipe out that family, there was somebody that was a descendant down that reemerged later to try to destroy the Jewish people. Did y'all hear that? It almost sounds like in a spiritual sense, this is not the same people per se, but it almost sounds like when Esau took his grandson and said, I entrust to you, to completely annihilate the Jewish people. In the same way, now, this great, 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 great descendant of that emerges to annihilate the Jewish people. And then Esther is a direct descendant of King Saul. Did you know that? It says in Esther 2.5, a descendant of Kish, and that was um, Saul's father. And so she was a direct descendant. So here we have again, please hear me what I'm saying. Saul did not deal with it in his generation, and so now one of his descendants has to fight one of the descendants of the Amalekites he didn't kill. 
the same battle emerges later on. It also appears that Mordecai, who exposed the plot to assassinate the king, but it appears that maybe Haman took credit for it because Haman all of a sudden is being promoted, you know. But Haman hated Mordecai because he would not compromise his godly convictions. Y'all look this way and hear me. Whenever Haman went around, he wanted everybody to bow down and worship him. Are we supposed to bow down and worship any man? And so Mordecai always refused to bow down and worship Haman. And so Haman hated Mordecai. Why? Because Mordecai's life testified that what he was doing was evil. (laughs) And so Haman decides, as a direct descendant now of the Amalekites, he decides that I'm going, because he hates Mordecai, he decides I'm going to not only kill Mordecai, I'm going to exterminate every Jew that there is. I'm going to exterminate all of them. And so he begins in the month of Nisan to cast lots, which in this case would be a form of witchcraft and divination. He begins to cast lots to try to determine when would be the time. This began in Nisan. This would be equivalent to our January, okay? But they don't end up deciding to do it till Adar, which would be equivalent to our December. So there was a year that they were trying to determine when they were going to do this. How many knows when the devil really wants to attack? There's some things that may just be sudden little attacks here and there, annoying things. But if the devil ever really wants to take somebody out, don't be surprised if the attack was years in the making. And everything was strategized. The weaknesses were studied, the people in their lives, the doors in their life. You see what I'm saying? And it's strategized. It's like a blueprint. They begin to look at it, and and now there comes the fullness of time for them to release this attack. And the interesting thing is the attack came through the government of that time legislation. How many knows that the governments of the world under this fallen humanity has always been a big problem? It's no different today. But the government passed legislation because of Haman that would result in the annihilation of the Jews. And it's not unlike the Nazis, hear what I'm saying, whose leaders were sipping on expensive liquor, eating their pastries in their nice expensive press suits while signing papers to legitimize the extermination of their intent of 11 million Jews. But thankfully, only 6 million perished when their, their goal was 11 million. Did you know that there was a swastika found in some ancient jewelry that they dated back to the time of Esther? Isn't that interesting? That it was a necklace and it was gold and it had like a sun. I may have seen that where you see those old things like out of Egypt where it has the sun and the rays. But in that it had a swastika and it had some jewels in it. And it was dated back to the time of Esther. Isn't it interesting? that the swastika was back in that time. Now, don't get me wrong, it's probably more ancient than that, but it was found, and then later on, that the Nazis used that as their symbol. 
So as I've been saying through this whole sermon so far, Amalek will target your weaknesses, the weak, vulnerable places in your life, family, church, or nation. Isn't it just like the devil? If God's wanting to do something of significance, he's given you a word that's really from the Lord. It's legitimate. He knows it's real. He knows that's something in your near future. So he begins to strategize, and he won't just target you. He'll target the people around you, and he'll find their weak places, their vulnerabilities. And his goal is to try to systematically break down and destroy so that the ultimate purposes of God will not be fulfilled. Amalek is after your destiny. So how did Esther actually win this battle? Now, isn't it interesting that we're not dealing with Esther like some Joan of Arc or something where she's bearing the sword and she's going out to battle and she's mounting a horse and she's getting a group of people to go with her. And it wasn't like that. How did Esther really truly win this battle? The Esther story has to do with destiny and inheritance. Could it be that many believers will not truly enter their destiny and receive their true inheritance until their heart, like Esther, exemplifies becoming their model and practice? In other words, they're going to look at Esther and see her, hum- her humility. Esther was like the exact opposite of a Jezebel. She was somebody that in every way was the opposite. She was so humble. She was so submitted to authority. She honored authority. And Esther in every way was the type of person that could see huge breakthroughs. Esther's name really was Hadassah, which means like a myrtle beautiful tree. She was basically this, a very powerful intercessor. But intercessors can never really be powerful and effective until they're like Esther. That there's a real genuine humility there, a real honoring, being under authority. And Esther, just like I've mentioned so many times, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, Joel chapters 1 and 2, Isaiah 58. Humility, prayer, fasting, giving, deeply consecrating our lives, those five things. But the first thing is humility. In Isaiah 58, is this not the fast? How is it that we humble ourselves? One of the ways God has given us is fasting, but humility is the key. That would be, when I look at the life of Esther, I would say more than anything she exemplified to me, great humility. If you read Joel chapter 1 and chapter 2, because of the the sins of the Jewish people of that time in the days of Joel, the enemy had come in. And it was, the enemy had come in basically as what the Bible described like locusts. And they were stripping. I mean, the locusts in Joel 1 were stripping the trees. They were stripping the leaves. They were destroying the fruitfulness. The locusts were causing widespread devastation. But it spoke of, prophetically, it spoke of actual armies that were coming in and destroying 
And just like it was in Joel's time, the body of Christ, because of things not being right on so many different levels in so many different areas, in Joel's day, it was actual physical armies described like locusts coming in. But yet in our time, it seems to be spiritual warfare and the locusts are like demonic forces that have found a way in. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? And so there's been a lot of destruction, but then God tells how to overcome this. And then you go from Joel 1 to Joel 2, and God says, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, begin to get everybody, young and old, to come together and humble yourselves in sackcloth and ashes, which is humility, and begin to pray and fast, cry out to God. And Joel says, if you'll do this, the Lord will drive away these armies. And then he said, the Lord will restore after that and release the grain again, the new wine, the oil, the former latter rains. He'll pour out his spirit and he'll restore the years the locusts have eaten. That's the key. And that's what was happening here with Esther. She was humbling herself in prayer and fasting and really consecrating herself. But I'm gonna show you symbolically here. But as she did that, it was true humility. There was no pride. There was no cockiness. There was no disrespect toward authority. She had no disrespect toward her husband, the king, whatsoever. She was the opposite of a Jezebel. And God could use that woman to shift a nation's destiny. She did it through being an intercessor. You know what an actual intercessor is? Somebody that's a go-between. So in the days of Moses, whenever they sinned with the golden calf, God was very angry. And how many knows that God doesn't just say things he doesn't mean like people do? God said, I'm going to wipe them out and start over with you, Moses. Now, many of us would say, well, that sounds like a good plan, Lord. But Moses being a real intercessor, he was very broken, very humble. Did, that, did I say humble again? Yeah. He was very humble, and he said, God, please don't do that. Please have mercy on them. If you're going to blot them out, then blot me out too. And God, his anger was calmed, and God began to restore. Now, he had to deal with the lawbreakers. So same thing with Abraham. Abraham with great humility. God basically had showed Abraham he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and, God, and Abraham with great humility said, oh Lord, if there's any righteous in there, if you, could, if you can end up finding just 10, would you please spare it? And God said, I will if I can find 10. Here's the sad thing. Out of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding areas, God could not find 10 righteous people. That's how wicked they were. Think about that. We're dealing, by the way, with nations. And God couldn't find 10. So God destroyed them. But he would have spared them because of Abraham's intercession. Great humility. Great humility. Prayer and fasting. Being givers. I never forgot about Cornelius. It always stuck out to me. When it, came, when it came time for God to break out, you know, he had been moving in Jerusalem, primarily just among the Jewish people. Now it was time for the gospel to go to the nations, to go out among the Gentiles. And when God decided to do that, who did he choose? 
a man by the name of Cornelius. And I often read that, and I thought, this is really neat to see that God chose this man. Why? And, and you know what? The angel of the Lord appeared to Cornelius. Can you imagine Cornelius being this Italian guy? And he loved God, man. He was like a proselyte, you know, a god fear. He loved the God of Abraham. He prayed to him every day. He was a big financial giver, apparently. And one day, out of the clear blue, an angel appears to this guy. Do you imagine how scary that would be? And he's standing there, and the angel says, Cornelius, I want you to send for Peter. He's in Joppa because I want him to come to you. And he said, this is why God chose you, Cornelius, because your prayers and your giving, your alms to the poor, your giving has gone up before God as a memorial offering. Now send for Peter. There's something about that, being a giver. I remember reading in the Bible, tithers, it says that God will rebuke the devourer and open the heavens. And I believe that's one of the reasons why God has such an open heaven here is because by and large, everybody for the most part that I know of are faithful with their tithes and offerings. And it plays a role in the open heaven, but we're also faithful in our prayers. We have prayer meetings. So like Cornelius, if we'll continue to be humble before God, and we'll make his house a house of prayer, and we'll be givers. What happened to Cornelius? When Peter came, the Holy Spirit fell on him and his entire family, probably the friends they invited, everybody there, the same way that God fell on the day of Pentecost. The people that were with Peter said, my God, he's falling on these Gentiles the same as he did on the day of Pentecost. So Esther represents the intercessor, great humility, prayer, fasting, being a giver, and really consecrating your life. Esther had to go through a time of washing. If you read the story, she was being washed and she was being anointed with oils to prepare for her time with the king. In Hebrews 10.22, it says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Esther 2.12, now when the turn of each young lady came to go into the king, um, Xerxes was his name, Ahasuerus there, but same person, it says, after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women for the days of her beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil and myrrh, six months with spices and cosmetics. So the spices listed there were some of the very ones in the anointing oil. So Esther went through a period where she was being washed and she was being anointed. And it was symbolic of the waters of immersion, I believe, and the anointing with oil that was consecrating her life. And so I want to close with this. The God sovereign and supernatural who turns impossible situations around. In Luke chapter 18, this precious woman kept going before this parable. She kept going before a wicked judge, pleading for mercy. But this wicked judge, Jesus' parable he's telling, has no fear of God. He didn't care about this woman, but she kept coming every day, every day, over and over. Finally, he didn't fear God, didn't care anything about her. He's just like, so she quit wearing me out. He gave her what she wanted. And Jesus said, well, how much more so is God the Father going to do that for his children? But he says, the Lord will find faith 
when he comes to the earth. The key is faith. In Luke chapter 18, the precious woman got justice. There's something about the courtroom shift that God wants to do. You know, when I read the story of Esther, the name Yahweh is never appeared in the whole scroll, but yet you see the hand of God everywhere. As they begin to pray and fast for those three days, remember the king all of a sudden, Xerxes, he couldn't sleep, and the chronicles were read to him because, you know, like any of us, like reading about history and these boring things would put him to sleep. So he had somebody come read to him. Well, he found out that there was an assassination plot, and the actual person that actually um, exposed it was never really honored. That began the turning around right there. You know what that was? That was God answering the prayers and fasting and beginning to move into the situation. Even though God's name is not written in the Aramaic, yet you see the hand of God, sovereign and supernatural, behind the scenes. And I want to close with a story. I kind of open with the story about Peter. <clears throat> but there's a story, there's a book that is an extra-biblical book called Jasher. I read this book years ago. It was really interesting. Always take anything that's not in the Bible with a grain of salt because some things in it may not be perfectly accurate. It's not in the canonized scripture. But I do believe that there are some things in it that are very accurate. And the story that we all know, going back to Jacob and Esau, when Jacob left Laban's house, and now Jacob has his two wives and the family and all their belongings, and he's going back to the land of his father. He's got to face Esau. And we know the story from the Bible. We've all read this. Jacob is scared, and rightfully so, because Esau has always said, I'm going to kill him. And Jacob, he gets close to where Esau is coming. He knows that they're going to meet soon. And Jacob was really scared, so he had Rachel and some of his family, her kids, etc., go over here. And then he has Leah, her kids, and some of his servants and everybody go far over here, thinking, well, if Esau attacks and kills one of them, the other will escape. He's, he's legitimately scared, and he has a good reason to be scared, because Esau hates him. And so the story goes in the Bible that Jacob wrestles with God all night in prayer. How many knows there's something about wrestling in prayer? Kind of like Esther, she had to pray and fast. Jacob prayed, and as he prayed, this angel appears. And Jacob's wrestling the angel. And the angel is obviously stronger than Jacob here. But Jacob refused to let him go. He was grabbing hold of him and holding on. He said, I'm not going to let you go till you bless me. And Jacob's name in Hebrew is Yaakov, and it means like a heel grabber, and it implies somebody that, that's deceptive. It's not, it's not a good name. And Jacob is wrestling this angel all night, and he's, you've got to bless me. You, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. And finally, the angel says, no longer will your name be heel grabber, deceiver, but I change your name to Israel, which means like an overcomer. Because you have striven with me and you've overcome he touched his hip, and it changed his walk. And let me tell you, please hear what I'm about to say here. Some people never really wrestle with God all the way until their walk is actually changed. Whew. Did y'all hear me? They don't. Some people, I've pastored a long time, 
And I've seen a lot of people come and go. I've been a part of really big ministries and part of smaller ministries. And a lot of people never really change. Isn't that sad? There are some people that really do change. They're totally different. They let God do whatever needs to be done. But there are other people that it's always everybody else's fault. And they're always kind of angry, blaming others. They always have a problem with everybody else. They never really let God do in them what needs to be done. You know what this represents here? Jacob is saying, I will not stop wrestling with you until my walk is different and until you're able to bless me. Listen, we need our walks to be different. We all want God's blessing, but are we blessable? Did y'all hear what I said? We all want God's blessing, but we've got to be a people that God can bless. And Jacob wrestled until God, through that angel, changed his walk, and he came out with a limp. He was different. And now his name went from being deceiver to overcomer. And Jacob came out, but here's the story that is not in the Bible. It's in the book of Jasher. And I personally believe that this story is true. And I'm going to paraphrase it because if I read the whole thing, it would take too long and I would lose you. But basically, when that angel said that you have prevailed, in the book of Jasher, it says that God sent four angels to confront Esau, that Esau was on his way to kill Jacob, and he had something like, if I remember right, 400 armed men with him. And they were coming to kill Jacob. They, they were angry. They shared Esau's hatred for him. And Jacob was outmanned, outnumbered, and Esau was coming. And so Jacob, being scared, sent different people to go in front of Jacob with gifts. They brought all these animals and, and all that. And he sent different ones so that as Esau was coming, they would be a messenger with a gift. And then he would go a little ways, a messenger with a gift. And Jacob was trying to appease him and say, tell him that, my Lord Esau, I'm sorry for our past differences. And, but Esau was coming to hurt him. So in the book of Jasher, God sends these four angels. And each time an angel appeared to Esau, the angel appeared to him in such a supernatural way that Esau and his 400 men saw that one angel, but when they saw him, the angel appeared to them as riding a horse and as a mighty man of war that had a huge army behind him. That's how he appeared to Esau. It so scared Esau and his men that they fell off their horse. Esau fell off his horse in fear. Who are you, my Lord? And the angel that appeared to all of them as being the leader of this army said, I am with your brother Jacob. And so the next angel came and did the same, the one after that, the same, and the fourth one. By the time the fourth one came and told him that I'm with your brother Jacob, Esau decided maybe I need to calm down. Because in his mind, there were four mighty generals with armies that he was going to have to deal with if he touched Jacob. <laughs> So that by the time, in the book of Jasher, by the time he got to Jacob, he had calmed down. God turned his heart. And when he saw Jacob, 
he actually wept and went and hugged and kissed him. And his men also wept and hugged him, and they, they parted ways in peace. God turned an impossible situation around. Sometimes even in family squabbles, the spiritual dynamic, the spiritual warfare, there may be people that get where they hate you because of your walk with God or whatever. But God can send his angel and turn it around. Did y'all hear what I said? So the book of Esther is that way. I believe in the book of Esther. We don't, we don't have an account of actual angels being reported in Esther, but you'll never convince me that God didn't have angels at work behind the scenes in the book of Esther. And so as the story goes, Esther, after the fast, told the king she went before him as an intercessor for her people. And if she was to go before him under Persian law and he didn't invite her in, she would be killed unless he extended his scepter. So King Xerxes extends his scepter. She's able to approach him. He said, Esther, you must be very troubled, basically. What, what's on your heart? I'll give you even up to half the kingdom. What? And she said, come dine with me and have Haman come. They came and she fed him. And then the next, she said, come again and I'll do one more banquet. They come again. Once she buttered him up real good with food, <laughs> she said, he said, well, what can I do for you, Esther? And she said, if my people were just going to be sold as slaves, I wouldn't have said anything. But there's a plot to exterminate me and my people. And he got angry. He said, who, who did this? She said, that wicked Haman. And the very gallows that Haman built to hang Mordecai because he hated Mordecai was the very gallows he ended up being hung on. And let me tell you, I'm talking about the ancient spirit of Amalek. I believe y'all hear what I'm saying right here. Haman had 10 sons. Just like in the days to come, the Antichrist himself will have 10 kingdoms. Did y'all just hear what I said? The ancient spirit of Amalek, the Antichrist, anti-Semitic spirit that from generation to generation is going to emerge again through the Antichrist himself and his 10 rulers once again to persecute the true Christians and exterminate them in the earth and then trying to what? Destroy and exterminate Israel completely. To try to stop what? The second coming of Jesus Christ. In the book of Esther, kind of prophetically, Haman is like the Antichrist. His 10 sons like those 10 kingdoms. The Antichrist will have to face Jesus Christ and he will end up in the lake of fire. So hopefully you learned something tonight, but I want to pray with people here in a moment. Now I'm going to ask God to mightily touch us in this place. But Lord, we just humble ourselves tonight and we thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord. There's, there is these ancient, from generation to generation, spiritual forces of hell that are bent on stopping what you're wanting to do in the earth. But Lord, just like Jacob, we wrestle in prayer. And just like Esther, we're going to be intercessors. And those that through faith and patience possess the promises of God like Jacob or like, Joseph, um, like Joshua in days of old, we're going to possess the promised land that God has for us. But many people left Egypt that did not enter the promised land. And Lord, we ask you, let us be among those that can take promised lands and see giants fall before us. We want to be those, Lord, that see it all the way through. 
and not get a bad spirit about us or get off. And Lord, we thank you. We want to be like Esther. We want to be those that can be intercessors for you. And so, Lord, we thank you for it, and we bless you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Once you put on some worship, and we'll get into this tonight, let's move the chairs and just begin to press in for worship.